I hope you have a Bible, and I'm sure that you do. I'd love for you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight. We're going to pick up in verse number 7 in just a few minutes. Uh, We did an introduction in chapter 4 last week, verses 1 through 6, and we've got a great time in what, again, I think is one of the most important passages in the Bible for the Christian. Uh, 1 Corinthians is about the church. 2 Corinthians is about the Christian, Christians that are facing particularly hardships and struggles and frustrations. Uh, 2 Corinthians is for, I believe, our generation more than it's ever been relevant Uh, In previous generations, 2 Corinthians is so relevant and so uh, powerful to our uh, to our ears tonight, uh, to our generation, to our people, to this world today, to the Christian that is wondering what's the reason for the things that we're facing, uh, what's the purpose in these things that we're facing, uh, what, how should we respond to what we come up against. 2 Corinthians has so much to say, particularly chapter 4 has so much to say. So to get us started, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what do you think, what do you think the greatest temptation that we all face might be? What do you think that if we were to say that all of humanity in general, as if all of us as a people face one particular temptation more than anything else, what would you guess that to be? We might all have different answers. Uh, we might all have answers that are similar to each other that pretty much kind of are all lumped into the same same category. Um, maybe you'd argue that it's different for everybody, that, you know, I'm tempted by this, you're tempted by that, uh, that we all face our own different individual battles, even if they do come from the same enemy and from the same sin. Uh, but, but what have I told you? The answer to this question is actually pretty obvious. And, and you can conclude that all the other temptations that we face, because we face many, that I think it could be concluded that all the temptations that we face actually come under the umbrella of this one greatest temptation. There are several reasons why I think there is one easy answer to arrive at, and there are a few verses and passages we could look at, but really the best place to look is at the very first temptation that people faced, or that the first people faced, that is, uh, and how they didn't deal well with it and how they fell because of it. Uh, so you remember, when Adam and Eve were created in God's image, when he got, when he put them in the garden and he told them they could do whatever they wanted to, enjoy the fruit of the garden except for one, uh, remember the serpent showed up, of course the devil in that uh, serpent, uh, uh, in that serpent's uh, body, the serpent came and asked Eve if there was anything off limits because he knew there was and he wanted to get in their minds and see what they may were thinking about those limits. So he asked Eve, hey, has God said that you know you, you can't eat of any tr- tree of the fruit of the garden? And of course she said, yeah, there is one forbidden tree that we can't get near, we can't take from, uh, and if we eat of it, we're going to die. And of course the, Satan says that, that infamous line, you, surely, you, you shall not surely die. Uh, but we know that story very well. We know what happens uh, as a result of that. But, but think about what the devil says back to Eve. When he says, you shall not surely die, um, there's a response that he gives to her that, that comes across as an explanation, but is really a temptation. So he says to Eve in Genesis 3 verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, this got them hook, line, and sinker because the allure of becoming like God was too great for them to resist. Now, regardless of what else is, is included in that verse, that line that you will be like God, that was too tempting for them, even in their pure, sinless state. 
Now, we know what happens. They take of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They don't become godlike at all. They become even less godlike than they were. They become separated from God uh, spiritually forever in their earthly condition. Uh, they, did, they didn't become like God. Satan lied to them. But that was enough to tempt them. That was enough to get them to buy into it. When he said, if you eat of that fruit, you will be like God, that was all it took. They fell for it. And, and, and we all fall for that same temptation. This is the greatest temptation that all of us face. That if you just take this fruit, if you just follow this path, if you just believe this lie, you will be like God. Now, now, we don't necessarily hear those words, you'll be like God, and that might not be our motive. But the temptation is that we're all, we all face this temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to exalt ourselves beyond our intended place. As in, Adam and Eve were made to be creatures in God's image, serving God, glorifying God, but they were not made to be God. They were never supposed to go beyond that place of humanity. Yet they wanted more. They justified their decision to chase after more. And it cost them everything. Every single one of us faces this same temptation. To think more of ourselves, to think more highly of ourselves, to exalt ourselves beyond our intended place. Now, now I don't want you to hear me say this, that we're supposed to be this low, defeated, deprecating group of people. Uh, that, that's not what I'm saying. That is not healthy. But there is this temptation to see ourselves and establish ourselves as independent and invincible. That everybody faces the temptation. And all of us, we think it's a, a worthy path to walk. We all want to be independent and we all want to be invincible. And really, all sin stems from our desire and our quest to shore up what we need and surround ourselves with whatever may give us some sort of invulnerability. We all want to be independent. We all want to be invincible. We all want to have an invulnerability so that we can remain at that place, that independent and that invincible place. Now, on the surface, that seems harmless. On the surface, that seems like the ideal life. I mean, what's wrong with being self-sufficient? What's wrong with being strong and mighty and, and, and powerful and prosperous? The problem with it is our nature cannot handle it. We are constantly being tempted and enticed to rely on and place our faith in anything except and but God. We are constantly being tempted by every single direction and from every single angle to rely on something besides God. Trust in someone besides God. Put your faith in. Shift your weight from God to something else. Our nature sees independence and sees invincibility and sees invulnerability and it's so tempted by those things. And while we may not overtly say, I don't want to rely on God. I don't want to have to depend on God. Our actions suggest otherwise. So what's the problem with independence? What's the problem with invincibility? It will keep us from relying on and delighting most in and desiring more of God. Now, again, we, I know that none of us, none of us think that independence and invincibility and invulnerability are going to make us rely less on God. None of us think that having more and being greater and being stronger and being on top of the world is going to affect our faith at all. But it does every single time, doesn't it? 
This is the age-old struggle of humanity. Something that seems like a harmless quest for renown and fame and power and comfort and ease is directly contrary to where our hearts ought to be focused and what we should be seeking out. So we must be aware of this weakness, of this temptation that seeks to prevent us. Because here's what your flesh is doing. You, you may think it's harmless. You may think it's a good idea or a good thing inside of you that wants it. But our flesh wants to keep us from being dependent on Jesus. Our flesh wants us to, to not trust in him and totally rely on him. Our flesh wants us and sin wants us and the devil wants us to decrease our faith in Jesus every single day. And if the devil can get you to 1% degree, lower your faith. If he can give you something or show you something or entice you with something that causes you to rely on Jesus a little bit less than you did before, he wins. And we lose. Now, the title of this series is In Christ. And, and we talked about this, but what does in Christ mean? In Christ is the New Testament way of describing salvation. In Christ says that we are fully committed to trusting in Jesus for our salvation and our sufficiency. Now listen, you can't be in Christ and in the world. You can't be in Christ and in self. You can't be in Christ and in the flesh. But we like to straddle that fence, don't we? We are always going to have to battle this temptation that wants to remove us from being totally in Christ. And, and listen, the temptation is so subtle. The temptation is so subtle and it's so easy for us to let our guards down. We say things like this. Oh, this won't take away from my faith. I mean, are you, you really have such low confidence in me that you think if I get this... It's going to replace my faith. I, I, I'm, I'm ashamed that you would think that of me. Listen, God bless you. I love you. I think a lot of you. But it will detract from your faith, and it will replace your faith, and it will do the same thing to me. That's how dangerous this temptation is. As quickly as we entertain this line of thought, oh, it won't hurt me. It won't take away from my faith. All I need is a little bit of this, a little bit of power, independence, and invincibility. And you wonder why we're always facing this kind of a struggle where things are being pushed, things are pushing against us. And that quest for invincibility, that quest for independence, that quest for invulnerability, it's almost like God is working against us. And you bet he is. Because he knows that if you chase after that dream, and he doesn't interfere, then you won't have faith in him like you should. So what's this got to do with our study tonight? It has a lot to do, as we'll find out. Paul's going to return to the topic that we talked about in chapter 1, but he's going to go much deeper and much farther with it. And I tell you, it's going to open our eyes. I hope that it does, and I believe that it will. It's going to open our eyes to the path that we constantly are being tempted to take. And it's going to answer many of our questions about the path that God intends us to take. And it's going to answer the question that you might have, why would God bring this on my life? Why would God allow me to face this when I feel like he would want something better for me or different for me? I think this sermon's going to, this message is going to answer some questions. So last week, we talked about how we are all prone to give up. We're all prone to lose heart. Uh, Paul showed us how we must guard our heart so that we don't get frustrated and that we don't get discouraged when we are challenged and, and, and dealt with, dealing with opposition in ministry and, and struggles in ministry. 
So here's what Paul doesn't tell us at the end of that lesson as he bridges into this next passage. He doesn't tell us there's a way for us to earn a ministry or obtain a ministry or a walk with God where we will no longer face challenges or frustrations. He never, he does not say, well, once you endure for a little while, you're going to overcome those things and you'll never face another problem again. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that there's some point in a Christian's life where you're not going to have any hardships or if you do enough good or you do enough things that God will take all the pain and all the hardships away. It's actually the opposite. There's this thing in us that wants to view serving the Lord as this, you know, as working up the corporate ladder that we're going to arrive, you know, at some point and we're going to pay our dues and then it's going to all be gravy from then on. That's the dream, but that doesn't line up with Scripture. And I'm not painting the picture that, that Christian life is this dreadful, gloomy, debased experience. Quite the opposite. The Christian life can be, can be the most fulfilling, peaceful, joyful experience on earth. But it only will be this if we go about it the way the Bible tells us to go about it. So it's going to require a few things. We cannot blend worldly philosophy and ideals with biblical truth because we are so bad about doing this. A little bit of what I think, a little bit of what God thinks, a little bit of what the world thinks, a little bit of what I think. We cannot blend what feels right to us and what seems right to us or fair to us and what the Bible teaches. We must hear and endure and embrace and patiently pursue what the Bible teaches. Lest we grow weary, lest we get overwhelmed, lest we give into temptation and twist the Bible to say something that it doesn't say. And that will only cost us and prevent us from experiencing the power that is available to us and accessible in Christ. So, so, so Paul is going to show us how guarding our heart doesn't protect us or exclude us from hardships or struggles. He's going to be honest with us. And i got to be honest with you. He's going to be honest and say, you know what? Your physical and mental and emotional selves are going to be targeted and afflicted and tested and tried. His goal in this lesson is to show us that this toil that we will face can be understood as beneficial, uplifting, and empowering. Now listen clearly. This is not something that he says, oh, you just got to got to mitigate the pain. You've got to manage it. It's not something that you just kind of have to kind of, you know, tolerate for a little while. That, oh, there's this consolation prize. That is not what he teaches. He teaches that if we understand what God is doing in our lives and we see the purpose that, uh, uh, for the struggles that we face and the hardships that we face and the temptations uh, that we must overcome, if we, we see what God is doing, that it can be for spiritual gain. Not only that we can endure through trials, but strive in them and excel because of them. But we must submit ourselves to this teaching. We must place ourselves under this. This is why God told Ezekiel to eat the book. He told John to eat the book. Jesus said, you must chew on my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't consume this, then you're going to convince yourself that this is crazy and this is not for you. It'll come across as nonsensical. I got to tell you, chapter 4, verse 7 might be the most important, one of the most important revelatory verses you can ever study. So let's break it down. But we have this treasure 
and earthen vessels, or literally jars of clay, that, or so that, the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So Paul has told us that we must endure, we must not grow weary. In verse 7, he really hammers down what the Christian life is all about. This treasure. The treasure is the gift of Christ. It's the gift of salvation. Our purpose that we have in Christ. You have this treasure, this gift of Jesus, the presence of God in your life. You have this treasure, but the, the vessel that God has put this treasure in is your weak, fragile mind and body. Notice the contrast. The glory of God, the, the fragility, and the weakness of man. That we have the gift of Jesus, the power of God, the purpose of God in weak, fragile minds and bodies. Jars of clay. Vessels that are prone to break and crack and go all over the place. The treasure doesn't transform the vessel. It fills the vessel and sustains the vessel in spite of its glaring problems. And that's what Paul says brings glory to God. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that, or to show that, to show that God is using ultra-weak people to point to his all-powerful nature. Verse, four, verse 7 summarizes the means by which God is making himself known to the world. He uses ultra-weak, fragile people to point to an all-powerful God. If you have not committed verse 7 to memory, I, I pray that you would. Because it's going to explain a lot of the things that you face. It's going to answer a lot of the questions. We, the, the question that we all ask, why God? Verse 7 is the answer. Why would you let this happen to me, God? Verse 7 is the answer. To show that the power is not of you, it's of God. To show that you are a jar of clay. You are going to break, you're going to crack, you're going to fall apart, yet the power of God does not bat an eye. God isn't going to seal all the cracks up. He's not going to make you an unbreakable vessel. He's not going to transform you into some incorrigible, impenetrable vessel. You are going to be a jar of clay. Jars of clay are going to break and spill and fall down. But that's why God is doing this. To show that the power that is on display is not of you. It didn't come from you. It isn't because you did something great or you are somebody great. It's because God is. And if it was any other way, we would be glorified. We would be exalted. And that's what a lot of us want, isn't it? And religion makes it all to be that in, in some cases. There is something else that fights against this. That fights against our lot in life. As the path that God wants. Listen, from, the, from 300 years into the church, when, when the church got free... When the Roman Empire quit persecuting the church around 350 AD, as soon as the church got power, they've been trying, we have been trying to rewrite the Bible ever since. As in, oh, that doesn't apply to us. That applies to some people, but that doesn't mean, oh, we don't have to face that kind of life. We don't have to face those kind of hardships. That there's some way to overcome that and exceed above that. That's not what the Bible teaches. And we go against the work that God's trying to do when we believe otherwise. 
We want a life free of weakness. We want a life free, a way to escape our weaknesses. But the truth of the matter is, as Christians, we not only continue to struggle under the world's fallenness, but we will face even more intense trials because of our faith. Why? So that, so that, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are so brainwashed by this world and its hopes and its dreams, by our flesh and its fallen nature. And here's what we all have fallen under the spell of. Human nature is, is to embellish weakness and project strength. Isn't that what we all do? Well, we don't want nobody to know how weak we really are. So we dress it up, we paint it up, we color it up, we, we, we embellish it. Because we don't want nobody to know that we are not perfect. Oh, we're strong and we're independent, we're invincible. Human nature is to embellish weakness and it's to project strength. And Hey, look at me, look at what I can do, look at what I've done, look at what I'm able to do. We seek ways to bypass any and all weaknesses. Think about all the shortcuts that we've been blessed with in this day and age. And, and I wouldn't want to go back in time for a minute. None of us would. Think about all the shortcuts that we have. All the barriers and, and, and hurdles that we've been able to overcome or erase. Through modern innovation, modern science, modern inventions. Life is on paper as easy as it's ever been. Everything has become smarter and safer and faster. Yet we are still jars of clay. And we always will be. Isn't it true? That we may, everything has been improved and advanced, but guess what? People still suffer, people still struggle, and we always will. We want a version of Christianity that follows the same trends as, as our world has advanced. We want a version of Christianity, and the American church has fully embraced this, these doctrines that contrary to Scripture. We want a, a life that is worry-free and problem-free and stress-free and struggle-free, and a lot of Christians live in this delusional world where they just pretend that everything is perfect in order to project that strength. But don't you see that's just pride trying to consume you and entrance you? And what does the Bible say about pride? Peter tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time... He may exalt you. That tells me that if we are exalted at the wrong time, it's not God doing it. And you know what the wrong time is? This life. We, we automatically associate God's blessing with all the things of this world that are on top. Problem-free and, 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 and debt-free, all these things. That, oh, well, clearly that's God's blessing. And, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Yet we fall for that, don't we? Because we want, we want that. Paul's message isn't that we should seek after troubles. Now, hear me, hear me very clearly. Paul is not saying that you should pray for problems, but Paul is just going to be honest with us. If you're serving Jesus, you're going to face some trouble. Look at verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So, the, so the, the, the hardships are definite, but the defeat is not. Always, verse 10, always, underline that, always carrying about the body, uh, the dying body of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus, that's the resurrected life, 
also may be manifested in our bodies. But how do you get the resurrected life? You've got to carry around the body that was dying. The cross is what he's talking about. So you bear the cross in order to embody the resurrection. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. And he doesn't mean literally dying, but he means a life of hardships, a life of struggle, a life where things are working against us sometimes. That the life of Jesus, that the resurrected life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And he's talking about how God is using them to build up the church. So death is working in us so that life might be worked in the world around us. Or that God might raise people up around us through the work that he's doing in us. So what does Paul make it very clear in, in this passage? that we're going to face some struggles. And he doesn't mince any words. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will face some tough times, will, from the devil or from the enemies that the devil has on this planet, will be persecuted. And that's not a might be or one day you'll be, uh, uh, you'll be able to evade it. It's just a definite reality, right? And again, you might think, well, Justin, this is kind of a, this is not really an uplifting message. It's, number one, it's true. But number two, it can be uplifting if you hear what God's trying to say through it. It's not a bad life. It's a full life. It's a life full of power and presence. There are a lot of believers, and, and, and I don't think anybody here tonight would be in this category, but, but I want to I just be honest about this. There's a lot of believers on the periphery of serving Jesus, and that's why they stay on the edge. They want to be close enough to Jesus to be saved and blessed, but with enough distance from him to feel safe and comfortable. Because if I get too close... He might ask me to do something I don't want to do. He might take something from me that I don't want to give up. He might take me down a pathway that I don't think is going to be that fun to go down. That's 90% of the church. And inner 10 and hour 90. Paul says to those watching, afraid of losing something, afraid of the cost and discomfort, trying to save both their lives and their souls at the same time. He says, y'all know you can't do that, right? I mean, what, what did Jesus teach in all four Gospels? And I think if, he, if, if something's repeated in all four Gospels, it must be pretty important. This is the only thing repeated in all four Gospels. Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Now listen, we think of a cross that we wear around our neck, a cross that we see in a church building. The cross to them was the electric chair. The cross was an instrument of torture. You don't take up a cross and walk again. You take up a cross, you're dead. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, that's a very charged commandment. Because they watched him take up a cross, and they saw what it did to him. He says, hey, take up your cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there's a definite contrast. If you try to save it and try to preserve it and try to build up yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, you know you're going to lose anyway. And if you give it away for a purpose and a cause, you'll find it. And he asked that age-old question, that powerful question, for what does it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So Paul is talking to the church members who are on the edge about 
uh, on the edge about going all in for Jesus, embracing a deeper, more meaningful walk with God, who still falls for the temptation of self-preservation, self-exaltation. And he says, do you want to see the power of God work in your life? Quit trying to save this jar of clay and take the leap of faith and say yes to Jesus. Say no to this flesh, say no to this world, and see what God can do. That flies in the face of everything this world stands for and flies in the face of everything your flesh wants. But this is what your soul wants most of all. A lot of times, as Christians, God begins to show us how he wants to work in our lives, and immediately it challenges us, and it costs us something. And we instantly retreat to the sidelines, and we say, whoa, 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 not for me. So many Christians take a deeper walk, a closer walk, a more intently walk with God. And as soon as they face hardships, they say, you know what? As soon as I get done with this, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. The Holy Spirit is working in every heart as you read verses 11 and 12. For we who live are always being delivered over to death. Now you think, Paul, man, that sounds like a pretty sad thing to say. Paul does not say that with a tear in his eye or frustration in his heart. He says that with joy, knowing that the life of Christ may be manifest. He says confidently, death is working in us so that life might work through us and for the church. So let me ask you this. Do you want to see the life of Jesus manifest in your life? It's going to take, back up to verse 8 and 9, it's going to take some affliction. It's going to take some perplexity. It's going to take some persecution. It's going to take being struck down or knocked down. But every single time, God will raise you up stronger and better and closer to him with the spiritual ability to do more for him than you ever did before. Now, I know what you're thinking. Justin, that takes some faith to buy into that. Listen to how Paul, what Paul says in verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. So Paul, now, you don't have to take this step. You don't have to take this leap of faith. I can't make you take it. 90% of every Christian that ever lives and dies and goes to heaven will not take this leap of faith. But Paul invites you to confess with him, I believe in what I just said and what he, what he just said. Because why, how, why is he so confident in verse 14? Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you as in the people that God is working through our lives to reach. Again, I know this is, this is for the, you know, ones that have bought in, but, but isn't that where all of us should be? I mean, this, this, this book isn't to Christians that are more serious than others, is it? I mean, we're not going to get to heaven and God's going to say, okay, some of y'all Christians, y'all are the preschool crowd. I'm not going to judge you according to what, my Bible, what the book said. I'll judge y'all according to John 3, 16, but I'm not going to judge you according to 2 Corinthians 4. That's not how it's going to work, Right? He's not going to say, okay, here's the John 3, 16 Christians. Here's the 2 Corinthians 4 Christians. I think we're all going to be in the same group, right? And again, grace is what saves us. There'll be a lot of people in heaven that never believe this stuff. And they'll live in eternity in light of that. 
But to whom much is given, much is required. And if we know the word and we read the word and we want the most out of the word, then we've got to reconcile what this word says to us and what we're doing with it. You know, doesn't this, doesn't this reveal how little faith we have? How weak a lot of us are, most of us are. We just don't see it as worth it. We don't see it going to pay off. But, but, but look at verse 15. Paul says it was all for the work of Christ. It was all for the kingdom's gain. For all things are for your sakes. Now when he says your, he's talking about the church. As in, it was worth it to build y'all up. But he's inviting us to take on his own voice. Do you see what I mean? He's inviting us to use his voice on behalf of those God's wanting us to reach. He's inviting the Corinthians to take his place in ministry and reach others that are in their place currently. For your sakes, the, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So why is Paul doing this? To build up the kingdom to glorify God. It was worth it to him. Verse 16 and 18, through 18 in closing. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm faced with affliction, it doesn't feel light. It feels heavy. It feels hard and difficult. But look at how Paul, look at his rationale. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. It may feel like it's several months long for some of us. I mean, it may be several years long for you. I don't know what you're facing and what you're going through. It may feel like it takes years to overcome. And you may never overcome it. And the reality is, if you do overcome it, you're probably going to face something else. But Paul says, it's light. It's light. It's for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you see that phrase in the middle there? It's working for us. Now, how in the world can there be a branch of the church that preaches that if you really are uh, living for Jesus, then you're never going to have any problems? How in the world can you read this passage where it says that the struggles of this life are for us? I mean, you, you, it just shows how a lot of people don't read the Bible. Right, And there's that thing in you that says, you know what, if God really loves me, he'd take it away. And where does that come from? There's that thing in us that says, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let me have this problem. Listen, God loves you. He really loves you. But he's going to let you have that problem. And verse, 18, verse 17 tells me he's letting you have that problem because it's for you. It doesn't feel for you. I get it. But it's working for you a far more exceeding, and the big word is eternal, weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Because all I see is what I see. Right? That's not, that's bad English, but that's, that's how it is, right? I feel what I feel. I see what I see. I, I have a hard time looking beyond that. While we do not look, now Paul said, hey, this is how we're going to live as Christians. You don't have to, but you should. We do not look at the things that we see, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. 
I'm not able to preach this and do it justice, but let me try to wrap this up the best I can. You know what the reality is? Verse 16, our outer man is perishing. Our outer self is wasting away, whether we are ensconced in bubble wrap or whether we're on the battlefield. Our outer self is going to waste away no matter what. Some may age more gracefully. You can preserve and protect and bubble wrap your mind and your life and you can carve out a little tiny percent to give God and you can hoard the other 90 just for you. But guess what? That 90 that you're keeping to yourself, it's going to waste away. And then what are you going to do? When it's all said and done, we're going to wish that we gave 100% of our lives to God, aren't we? Yes, serving Jesus will cost you. It'll be uncomfortable. Paul says it's just a light, momentary affliction compared to what God is working towards. Romans 18, Romans 8.18 echoes it. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Weight of Glory after this passage. And he said that Christians are like kids offered a holiday at sea in the finest of yachts. And yet they choose to rather sit in the sand and make mud pies. Because they're convinced that's the easiest thing, to, that's the easier way to do it. So let me ask you this. And I know this is heavy and hard and, and this is maybe deeper than you wanted to go on a Wednesday night in May. I get all that. But hey, the Bible is the Bible and, and this is what our eternity is all about. Are you living for what you can see or what you can't see? That's a big question to ask, but that's an important question, I think. Do you dwell on what you can see and how, you, what it, set, how, it, how it scares you or how it entices you? Or are you more focused on what you can't see, as in what God is doing behind the scenes that might not always be apparent, but you trust that he is? Because one day, what you can't see will be all that you will ever see. Does that make sense? One day, what you can't see now will be the only thing you see forever. So I think it's important that we start tuning ourselves into what we can't see. Don't you? I mean, we could go through every parable that Jesus told the rich man who built bigger barns and was merry and died and lost it all. We could talk about the one that buried his talent under the sand, but I think this speaks for itself. We have this treasure in jars of clay for a reason so that within those fragments prone to crack and break can rest the power of God that lights up the world because through those cracks shines God's light. If we were just a vessel that had no cracks in it and had no blemishes, then everything inside of it would be contained to it. And it might be full, but nobody would know. So is your legacy... Wasting away with each day, because that's what happens. The outer self wastes away. Is it wasting away or is it being renewed day by day as in you see what God is doing and you're, you're all in on what he's doing, even if it costs you in the meantime? So i got to ask you one more question, one more set of questions, and we'll be out of here. What have you held back from God? Or what invitation have you resisted from God that might bring affliction on you or discomfort on you or frustration on you. It might cause you to be a little bit uncomfortable and might actually bring some hardship on your life. 
Or maybe there's a hardship in your life that you're just trying to numb and overcome with your own set of means because you don't want to deal with it, but maybe God wants you to deal with it because he wants you to see that he's working in it. What have you held back from God? Or what part of your life have you not paid attention to that might be a little challenging for you to pay attention to it? It'd be easier to, to tune out to it and do something else. What have you held back or what have you resisted? What if you're forfeiting an eternal weight of glory? I just want you to think about that. I think about this every single day of my life. Because there are situations that I deal with sometimes that I think, you know what, I don't want to deal with that because that's hard. And I have enough things that are hard. Ministry is not easy. All of y'all have a ministry. And maybe the reason why you don't engage in it is because you don't like the challenge of it. But what if you're forfeiting something that is eternally valuable to you. It's real easy to tune this out when life is going the way you want it to go. Regardless of what age you're at and what situation you're in in life, it's real easy to numb yourself to this and say, you know what, I don't, I don't have to deal with that. God loves me, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I don't care. I'd love to say, you know what, he's gonna, when you get to heaven, he's going to say, Man, all you guys over here, this 10%, y'all really did all this for nothing. But I just don't read the Bible that way. And I know my flesh is too tempted by these things or away from these things for me not to take it seriously because the devil doesn't want me to get this. The devil doesn't want any of us to get this. That tells me it must mean something big eternally. So what are you resisting and what have you held back that God might want to show you he's working in and he wants you to lean into it and he wants you to work through it because he's got something on the other side of it. Something to think about. Eternal weight of glory. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, your word. Lord, I love it and, and it's, so, it's so convicting at times but it's so refreshing and it's life-giving. Lord, I pray you would work through this message to challenge all of us. Let us not be content to sit on the sidelines. Let us not be content to be in the, on the periphery. But let us understand that you are working even in the most challenging of circumstances, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Lord, be with us as we think through all this and contemplate all this and, and, and use us, Father, and use the things that we're going through to show us what you're doing eternally. And that's what it's all about. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.